couple of months ago, my wife decided as a surprise uh, while I was out of town, she was going to build a pergola. She wasn't going to build it herself. She was going to hire somebody to do it uh, in her backyard. And uh, she was going to hire contractors, and she was going to extend the pavement, and she had this whole sort of grand plan. And I didn't know about any of it, uh, but along the way, I bumped into some pieces of information that as a husband were very alarming. Uh, (laughs) One moment, we were having a conversation and uh, we were talking about finances and husband and wife stuff, money, stuff like that. And uh, she says something to me. She goes, if you could do me a favor, uh, for the next couple of weeks, don't look at any of the credit card statements. <laughs> J- just ignore the bank records for the next couple of weeks. Things that, as a husband, you could imagine uh, raise a, a bit of panic level in your heart. Uh, another moment, uh, her, her cell phone was on the counter. Uh, this was a couple days later, and it starts to buzz, and, and I grab it, and I was going to go hand her her phone. And she grabs her phone, and she goes, what did you see? And I thought, what am I not supposed to see? Um, and she said, uh, if you could do me a favor for the next couple of weeks, just don't look at my phone. I don't want you to see anything that, that is on my phone. And, and, and you can imagine, without context uh, for what was going on, the backdrop to the story that she was planning this surprise and she was going to do it when I was out of town and you know, these were contractors. and you know, Without context for what was happening, that she was planning to build something in the backyard, uh, th- just these two strands and just these two pieces of information could be very alarming. I mean, what if a, a neighbor had called when I'd been out of town and said, hey, there's a bunch of trucks at your house and there's a bunch of men coming in and out carrying stuff, you know? I would have thought I was getting robbed. I mean, th- this was, but without the context and the backdrop for the story and, and without really understanding what she was up to, I could have just taken those two strands of information and built an entire narrative and an entire story of what I thought was happening. Some of us, you've done that before. You've eavesdropped into a story or you've eavesdropped into something and you've grabbed bits or fragments of information and built a narrative off into destructive results or people have done this to you and, and you took pieces of information or somebody took pieces of information and built a story that just wasn't the real story. And I say that today because I think that's how a lot of people, especially in our country and maybe even in this room, read the Bible. That when it comes to reading the Bible, we often eavesdrop in and we will grab a verse or we'll grab a chapter or a section and we'll build a narrative about the entire Bible. And this happens a lot, right? People will take a verse of scripture and build an entire theology about how God works around that one passage of scripture. And the heart of this series that we began last week is about beginning to study God's word, that we wouldn't just come to church and hear God's word, but that we would become the kind of individuals and people that become passionate about opening God's word and studying it and digging into God's word and knowing what he's saying. And anytime we open God's word, obviously we can't read it all in one sitting, but we are eavesdropping in to this ancient conversation. We are eavesdropping into this story, these words that were written thousands of years ago. And so the question today is, when you read the Bible, how do you make sure you're not just cherry-picking verses? How do you make sure that, that when we eavesdrop, we're, we're eavesdropping and understanding the story? This is especially different, uh, difficult because we live in a Twitter world, don't we? We live in a world that operates in 140 characters, and we are getting better and better at exchanging information faster and faster in our world. But at the same time, one of the things that's happening to us is we, get ex- we become experts at skimming information. 
We become experts at skimming and understanding just a little bit of a story or a little bit of information. And and in the world that we live in, very seldom do we drill down or dig down on a piece of information to understand the context or the depth of what that information is about. We do this when we read news stories. If we scroll through on our phone or our tablet, this is the universal symbol for scrolling. Uh, When we scroll through and we read a news story, we'll, we'll begin to just read the headline, at least I do this, and we fill in the blanks on what the rest of the story is about. Because, there, because in the world that we live in, we have information that's just coming at us all of the time. And in fact, the world that we live in, our attention span for the average American has, has been reduced to be about eight seconds long. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep my remarks really brief today, okay? Um, I'm sure it's different at the 9.30 service. I'm sure this is a 10-second crowd. Um, But our attention span gets reduced down um, in this kind of a world that we live in. And so the question is, when you open up the Bible, how do you eavesdrop in and not just grab a piece or just grab a verse? But, but, and and there's nothing wrong with that, but but how do we have an entire picture of the story that sits underneath it. This happens for non-Christians. Maybe you're here and last week you came and you're really skeptical about the Bible, but you thought, you know what, I'm going to start to read the Bible. Maybe along the way in your life, maybe you're really skeptical of Christianity or religion in general, and you say, you know what, the Bible's just literature, but somewhere along the way, someone came to you, a Christian, a well-intentioned Christian came to you and said, hey, you should read the Bible. This is God's love letter uh, to people. And so you thought, well, I'm going to give it a try. And so you opened up the Bible and you began reading and you read verses where you're wandering through the ancient world of Nahum or, you know, you're reading verses where Jesus says things that were confusing to you about hating your mom and dad and things. You just thought, why in the world is this in there? What is this about? Or you found yourself reading about a group of people called the Israelites that kept going off to war. And, and these verses, it's very easy to just lift that out, to eavesdrop into the story and ignore the rest of the story because you read something that was confusing or something that you didn't like. We do this as Christians. Well-intentioned Christians and not so well-intentioned Christians have done this for 2,000 years of Christian history where we'll take a verse of scripture, and this has happened to, to catastrophic results often in, in, in American history, where Christians will take a verse of scripture and place it in front of an agenda and spiritualize an agenda. This happened during the slave trade, didn't it? That Christians would take a passage of scripture and they would twist it and distort it as, a, as an agenda, as a way to spiritualize an agenda about hating other people. This happened during the civil rights movement. Christians would take verses of scripture and spiritualize an agenda and they would twist it and ignore other verses and, and refuse to synthesize the Bible with other verses and they would do it in such a way that, that they, they were spiritualizing, hating other people. And they would quote scripture along the way. And people have done this for, for hundreds and thousands of years, 2,000 years of history. People do this, we see this a lot in terms of prosperity, don't we? That, that people will take a verse of scripture about the blessings of God. And they will build an entire theology around that one verse. As if to spiritualize a dream about having an 80,000 square foot house or a fountain in the bedroom and say, this, this is the verse. This is the verse. And so here, here's the question. How do we make sure when we read the Bible, when we eavesdrop into the story, uh, that we're not just taking verses out of context, that we're understanding what the story of the Bible is trying to say so that when we go home, we begin to open up the word of God. And that's our prayer for this series, that you become passionate about knowing God's word 
uh, how do we begin to eavesdrop in and begin to read the Bible? And today's going to be a little bit different. I just want to give you three questions, and there's nothing spiritual about these three questions. And if you already have questions that you ask when you read the Bible, um, that's great. Stick with those questions. But I want to give us just sort of a starting place or uh, some more questions to ask when you sit down and read the Bible to begin to understand what's going on in this passage of Scripture. And then we're going to come back at the end, and I'm going to look at a passage from the New Testament and the Old Testament, and we're going to apply these three questions to two different passages of Scripture. And so here's the questions that when you begin reading the Bible, when you open up the Bible, say you go home and you find yourself, okay, I'm going to take this serious, like we talked about last week, to, to read the Bible five times. And so you find a verse of Scripture, and you come across this verse, and here's the first question to ask. What does it say literally? What is it literally saying? What is this verse about? Maybe it's Philippians 4.13. You read this verse and you say, what does this literally say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a beautiful verse. What a beautiful promise. You take that verse. What does this literally say? And here's a second question to ask. And it's backing up from that verse, backing up from the literal question or that first question, just taking a couple steps back and asking this. What is the context of the verse? What is the context of the verse? The Bible is a book, but it's also a library of books. And there are 66 books written by many different authors, divinely inspired by God over a long period of time, over a wide piece of geographical terrain. And the amazing thing about the Bible is that there's a coherent, cohesive voice, God's voice throughout telling this consistent story. But when you read the Bible, it's important to ask, what book are we in? Where are, are we in Philippians? Are we in the Old Testament? Are we in the New Testament? Is this a time that Israel is at war? Is this a time of peace? Is this a time they're in slavery? What's going on in this particular chapter of this particular book? When you read it in context, you start asking questions uh, like what's happening in front of the verse? What's going on in Philippians 4.12? What's going on after the verse? And begin to read the verses in front of it and begin to read the verses that are after it. Here's the third question. So you back up, you ask, what, is the literal, what does it literally say? Then you back up and you ask, what is the context of this verse? And then here, here's the third question. To back way up and ask sort of an overarching question, where are we in the narrative? This is the third question. Where are we in the narrative or the story of the Bible? Because in the exact same way that you watch a movie, and when you watch a movie, you realize this has a theme or themes, uh, there are characters, there's a plot, there's a storyline, something is progressing, something is happening. The same thing is true when you read the Bible. It's not just a bunch of random events at random different times. There is a theme or themes to the Bible. There are scenes in the Bible. There is a plot to the Bible. There are themes of love and sacrifice and big themes of redemption. And in the same way that you watch a movie, there is a theme and there's a storyline when you're watching it, when you're reading the Bible. And so the, this is just a question to ask, where are we in the narrative? Where are we in the story? In the same way that if somebody came to you and said, what was the movie about that you watched last Friday night? What was that movie about? Well, tell me about the movie. You wouldn't just say, well, the movie was about Jackie Chan kicked in a door. <laughs> you wouldn't just describe a scene in the movie you would step back and you would describe the story. You would say, well, it was these two friends and they met on a train and they decided to rob a bank or you know, whatever it is and hilarity ensued. You, know, you would tell 
the, the story, you would step back and you would say it was a comedy and you, here's sort of the, the overarching, you wouldn't just describe a scene, you would describe the theme or the overarching narrative of the story. And the same thing is true when you read the Bible. You can begin to realize, you begin to piece together, this is a story that God is telling. And there's themes and there's a plot and it's going somewhere. History is on a trajectory. It is moving in a particular direction. So the third question to ask is, where are we in the narrative? And there's certainly nothing spiritual about this framework, and you can use other words if you want, but you can think about the Bible in terms of being a five-act play. Then in the same way you go to a theater and you would watch a play and the curtain would come up and actors would come on stage, you could think about the Bible this way. And so if you're new to the Bible or you're new to Christianity, this is sort of a helpful way to think about the story of the Bible when you begin reading it. If the curtain comes up and it's act one of the Bible, this is act one, it's creation. Act one would be creation. So the curtain would come up, the Bible is a play, and God is standing on a stage by himself. And God, it says, in the beginning makes the heavens and the earth. And then he forms people. He makes mankind. And he says, you will have dominion over all of the earth. And so in the beginning, there was this story. If this is act one of the Bible, it's God creating things. Creates people, creates time, creates energy, creates light, creates and speaks a universe into existence. If the curtain goes down and the curtain comes back up, act two begins. And we're in Genesis chapter 3 at this point. And, and, and the curtain would open up and there would be a tree on stage. And this is the fall. This is the scene where everything about the world that we hate and can't stand, death, cancer, foreclosure, divorce, whatever it is, begins to be ushered in to the story of the human drama. Everything gets ushered in that we hate about this world. A couple pages later, uh, there's, a, there's a snake in the story. There's a tree in the story. And God says, don't eat from this one tree. And Adam and Eve, of course, for many of us that have been coming to church for a long time, you know the story. They eat from the one tree that God said, don't eat from. And everything begins to fall apart in act two of the story. A couple pages later, uh, Adam and Eve, they have some kids. And one of these kids kills the other kid. The, the, the world just becomes this place of chaos. God sends a flood into the world. A couple pages later, humanity decides to build a tower to be like God. And everything, this world becomes a very chaotic and dangerous play, uh, place in the middle of act two of the story. The curtain goes down. The curtain comes back up. And it's act three. And we're in Genesis chapter 12. And this guy named Abraham is standing on a stage by himself. And he's 75 years old. And God comes to him and he says, I'm going to raise up through you a nation. And this nation's going to be called Israel. And I'm going to be, be your God. And no matter what, no matter how bad it gets, you are going to be my people. And I'm going to make this covenant with you. I'm going to make this promise to you that no matter what you do, no matter how many times you blow it, no matter how many times you ignore me as your God, I am your God and you are my people. And this covenant relationship is established through this guy named Abraham beginning in Act 3 of the Bible. And so most of the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Malachi, is this, this God, Yahweh, interacting with the nation of Israel all throughout the period of the kings, all throughout the period of the prophets, all throughout the period of the judges. This is where we are in the story. The curtain goes down. 
the curtain comes back up. And on the stage is a manger. And God has decided to put flesh on himself and to enter into the human timeline. God has decided to put skin on and to move into the neighborhood, as one theologian said it. And the gospel writers are doing everything they can to record. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are essentially like journalists recording and jotting down what they see. And they are eyewitnesses to this. And Jesus, and for most of us that have been coming to church a long time, you know the story. He comes from heaven to earth, earth to the cross, cross to the grave, grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. This is where we are in the story. The curtain goes down. The curtain comes back up. And Jesus has gone back to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And Act 5 begins. And on stage, as the curtain comes up, is a bunch of disciples that were with Jesus, confused and sort of stared at each other going, what are we going to do now? And they begin to form the church of Jesus Christ that is in motion even in the world 2,000 years later. And they begin to meet and they begin to pray and they begin to baptize and fulfilling what Jesus had told them to do in the Great Commission of go into the world and baptize. And they begin to put in motion the church of Jesus Christ that we're a part of in this moment. And so when you read the, the, the letters that Paul wrote, this is where we are in the act of the Bible. And here's the amazing thing about Act 5. We often think about the Bible as a closed and distant story that was in history. But the amazing thing about the Bible is when you read Act 5, you realize in 2014, we are still being invited onto the stage of the Bible. We are being invited to participate and to be actors in the middle of this drama that is unfolding. And that is where Act 5 is, that we are the church of Jesus Christ, moving forward in the world, still fulfilling the great commission that Jesus laid out at the end of Act 4. And so there's nothing spiritual about that paradigm. But when you read the Bible and you start asking questions, what is going on in the story? It's helpful to have a framework and a paradigm to say, this is where I am in the narrative. And so here's the three questions. What does it say literally? What does it say in context? What's going on in front of it? What's going on behind it? And then to step way back and ask, where are we in the middle of this narrative? And so here's what I want to do today. I want to take a couple passages of scripture and want to apply those three questions to two different passages. We're going to look at one from the New Testament, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to look at one from the Old Testament as well. But we're going to ask these three questions as we read these passages of scripture. So if you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, which is in the middle of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to start looking at verse 22, and it's in the back of your worship guide as well. You can follow along there. And here's the verse that I want to look at. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Some of you men are glad you came to church today, okay? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So what does it literally say? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. So this is a verse of scripture. If you read it literally on the surface, Paul is, very, is really clear. Paul is making this very specific statement. But this is a verse of scripture 
that for thousands of years of human history gets ripped out of context and men particularly have used this passage of scripture or misused this passage of scripture uh, to mistreat their wife. I have heard this, this, this verse quoted and misquoted in all kinds of abusive and destructive ways. I've heard men quote this verse as if it's her job to treat me like the Lord, you know, <laughs> and, and to, to quote this verse in a way to say, I don't owe my wife anything. It's her job to submit. It's her job. I don't need to tell her about the finances. I can treat her however I want because in the New Testament, Paul says this, well, it's her job to submit. I've heard women use this verse as a way to put themselves in their place in a marriage and say, well, I can't ask those questions. It's my job to submit. And so the question is, this is what it says literally, but what's going on in the conversation? Why is Paul, is Paul just sort of throwing that in there as a bomb in the middle of Ephesians and saying, good luck figuring that one out for 2,000 years? Why is it in there? So let's step back from it and ask some questions. Verse 18, so let's back up and let's ask some questions about context. What's going on in front of it and what's going on behind it? Verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, Paul says. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is beginning this conversation that is about how when you're filled with the Spirit of God, what your life should look like. And he gives very, five very specific examples. He says when you're filled by the Spirit of God, you begin to live a life that's filled with gratitude. Because Jesus has risen from the dead by the power of God and he's now filling up the, the, the members of his body, the church. He's, he's filling us up with his spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is in us and, and we have that kind of power at work in us. So what does that look like? How do we begin to live that? Paul says, here's what you do. You begin to live a life of gratitude because the spirit is at work in you. And then he says this in verse 21 in continuing this conversation on being filled with the Spirit. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul says, one of the things you do when you're filled with the Spirit of God is you submit to one another. This isn't a wives issue. This is a disciple of Jesus issue at this point in what Paul is saying. That when you step into the presence of Jesus, you now are no longer an isolated individual that only cares about your needs and your wants. You now recognize your world has been expanded and you recognize there are people around you, their needs are at play, their needs are at work. And, and not in such a way that you're a doormat, but you begin to submit to the needs of others. You're not always prioritizing your own agenda and your own self. You begin to live this life filled by the Spirit of God of submission. And there's usually in our Bible a header that comes after this, as if Paul is beginning this new conversation, as if he's now going to start a conversation about what wives and husbands should do. But we added that header in there later, and Paul didn't write the numbers as he was writing this either. We put the header in there, and so then we continue into verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. This isn't a wives issue. This is a disciple of Jesus issue. 
Paul's not starting a new idea here on marriage. He's talking about a life of being filled by the Spirit of God. It's not a, just a wives issue. He's just saying, as a wife, this is how you live this life filled by the Spirit. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. He's saying as a wife, and as you begin to be filled by the Spirit of God, in the same way you're submitting, recognizing the needs of others, this is what it looks like in the context of marriage. And it sounds like Paul's being really harsh on women here, but then he flips to verse 25, and he says this, a verse that we usually ignore. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, this is how you begin to submit. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. Who gets the raw end of this deal? <laughs> Apparently, if you haven't died for your wife yet, you still have room for growth. Some of you that know me have heard me say this, but if your husband ever looks at you and says, you need to submit, you look back and say, well, you need to die. <laughs> That's how this works. That's how I rule this household. That's what's up. <laughs> I'm so getting beaten up in the parking lot today. Okay. <laughs> I will submit. Okay. But you see how, how quickly... Everything about that verse, that one verse begins to change when you step back and you ask questions about context. I'm just giving you these tools because you can take your favorite verse, you can take, maybe this is your favorite verse, and you can step back from it and begin to ask questions. What's going on in front of it? What's going on behind the verse? Where are we in the story at this point? We are smack dab in the middle of Act 5. The church of Jesus Christ, Paul is writing and saying, as citizens of the kingdom of God, as members of this church body, this is what marriage, as you begin to be filled by the spirit of God, and not just in cosmic levels, has Jesus come to redeem all things, he's come to redeem marriage. And this is what it looks like in the middle of Act 5, when everything starts being put back together in Jesus. Where are, where are we in the middle of the narrative? We're in the middle of Act 5. So let's ask a, a question about another verse. Let's pick a verse from the Old Testament. And let's go back. And this is a famous passage of scripture. And this is one that for many of us is a life verse. This is a verse that uh, since I was a little boy has been a life verse for me. And my goal in reading it is not to say, well, this is you know, a bad life verse, but to make it more beautiful if this is a verse that's profound to you and significant, because when you begin to understand why these verses are in there, it begins to make them more profound and more real and have greater significance. So here's the verse I want to look at. Jeremiah 29, 11. This is a famous passage of scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So what does it say literally? God knows the plans that he has for me. Plans to prosper you. Plans not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. 
And this is a verse that we put on graduation cards. We pray this verse over each other. My mom has prayed this verse over me since I was a little boy. And and I love this verse, and there's a sacredness to it. But this verse, at the same time, often gets used in such a way that that can be twisted as, as sort of a way to sanitize an agenda about just buying a bunch of stuff and about having a bunch of stuff. And it's God's goal for me to be prosperous and this is the verse and, and this is God's on my side when I buy this new thing or whatever it is. And, and, and we can use this verse and we can take it out of context and begin to apply it in such a way that it wasn't designed. And so I just want to look at it in context. And when we do, here's what you're going to discover. It doesn't, if it's your life verse, it doesn't make it insignificant. It makes it more profound and more beautiful when you begin to understand what's going on. And so if you back up to Jeremiah 28 and 27, what's going on in the story? Israel, at this time in history, has, they have made a mess of everything. They have this covenant with God, but they keep breaking the covenant with God. Things keep falling apart for Israel time and time and time again. And finally, God has had enough, and God is going to allow for Babylon, the world's superpower, to come in and to take Israel captive, and they're going to be slaves in Babylon for a long time. And this prophet Jeremiah has this job. It's a terrible job. He has to go to the nation of Israel and say, hey, Here's the deal. We're going to be slaves for the next 70 years in Babylon. Some of you are going to have kids there. Some of you are going to die in Babylon. We are going to lose our homeland. And another prophet comes along in Jeremiah 28. His name's Hananiah. And Hananiah comes to the people and says, hey, Jeremiah's being dramatic. It's not going to be 70 years. It's only going to be two years. He's like a prosperity prophet. He says, it's only going to be two years. Being in captivity, it's not going to be so bad. When Jeremiah 28, Hananiah falls over dead. And people are thinking, oh no, Jeremiah must be right. And they come to Jeremiah and say, what's the story? He says, it's going to be 70 years that we're going to be slaves in Babylon. And so Jeremiah is so heartbroken over this. He sits down and he pens this letter to the nation of Israel. And this is a part of the letter that he reads. He says this in verse Jeremiah 29, 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So what's going on in the story? When you read it in context... This isn't about prosperity. This is about a God who says, even when you've blown it, even when you've messed up, I am a God that will always keep my promises to his people. This is a, if this is your life verse, it's such a beautiful life verse because it's not about possessions. It's about a God who says, no matter what, I am gonna keep the promise that I made in Genesis chapter 12. You are my people and I am your God. And no matter how badly you've blown it, no matter how many times you've messed up, as the God of Israel, I'm gonna remain faithful to do what I promised to do. This is about a God who keeps 
his promises to his people. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage of scripture. Where are we in the narrative at this point? We are smack dab in the middle of the nation of Israel in Act 3. As they are wrestling and they are trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be the people of God. And so what if this week he took one of your favorite verses? What if he took your life verse? Or what if you saw somebody quote a passage of scripture on Facebook or someone tweets a, a verse of scripture? And what if you said, instead of just reading the, the surface level, just instead of just reading that verse, as beautiful as that one passage of scripture is, and there's certainly nothing wrong with memorizing a verse, it's, it's a good practice to do and it renews the mind, but I'm gonna drill down and I'm gonna ask some questions about context and about narrative about that particular verse. And here's the deal. We don't read the Bible for information we read the Bible for transformation. We don't just read the Bible so we get more information about the Old Testament or the New Testament. We become a lot smarter and we have a lot more tools to argue with other people. We don't read the Bible just for information. We read the Bible for transformation. We don't read the Bible so that we can just get smarter. We read the Bible, and here's the prayer as you begin to read and study your Bible, that you would not just become smarter, but that you would become different. That something about your character would start to look more and more like Jesus Christ. The Bible actually warns against knowledge, not in such a way that we should remain stupid, but the Bible says, hey, knowledge has this ability to puff you up and to make you proud. And you've probably met Christians somewhere along the way. I have been a Christian before that has just sat in Bible studies and gotten smarter and smarter and smarter and trying to learn more nuances of the Bible and doing that in such a way that it puffs up and can begin to make us proud. And Jesus and God, they have not recorded the Bible so that we can become better arguers. It has been recorded so that we can become better disciples of Jesus. And so here's the prayer. As you begin to study and as you begin to know God's word, and as a church, this is our prayer for you, that you would begin to have a passion to know what God has said to you as a citizen of the kingdom of God. But here's the prayer. God, as my information increases, would my transformation increase as well? God, as I get more information about your word, would my transformation increase as well? Because I would imagine you've met Christians somewhere along the way that as information has increased, they've become more rigid and more cruel to other people. And just begin to pray that as you read and study God's word. God, as I get more information, would my transformation increase as well? Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you have given us your word. And I pray you would fill us up as your church not just with sermons and not just books that we read about your word, but your word, God. Give us a passion to study it. Give us a passion to know what you're saying to us. Give us an insight into what you've promised. Give us insights into the story, God. And not in just such a way that we become smarter because we read this, but we would become different because we read your word. I thank you, God. The painstaking effort that's gone in to preserving your word so that 2014 years later we sit in a church building and we read it and we know this is God's word to us. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.